Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. What you're about to hear originally aired in May of 2018, and it's one of my favorites. Whether you're listening for the first time or making a second pass, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe as much as I did. The classic definition no longer is completely valid in North America. Why? It's because we started breeding a new version of Turo in North America, and it's fairly recent. It's only since the 70s. And we've moved away from the classic definition of, uh, of Turo barley. It doesn't really apply. This week on the show, fan favorite Joe Hertrick explains why most of us are brewing with two-row barley that was designed for adjunct brewers. The content is awesome, but it's pretty long, so I've chopped it up into multiple parts. First, you'll hear Joe introduce the subject, then the rest of part one is a separate segment on the history of barley in North America. In part two, Joe explains exactly how North American two-row changed, why it happened, and who benefited from that evolution. Next week, you'll hear part three, why today's North American two-row is problematic for all malt brewers and what you can do about it. Joe, for years, we've all been taught that there are two different types of barley in North America, but you've observed some deviations that are potentially problematic for all malt brewers. I guess before we can talk about what's changed, we probably ought to start at the beginning, right? Yes, I think so, John, Um, because classic teaching has always been for brewers uh, the differences between two-row and six-row, and it's in uh, literature explanation, and it's passed on from brewer to brewer. We've all learned that two-row has larger, more uniform kernels with higher extract potential, and that it's typically lower protein and lower in the malt elements that are derived from protein, such as soluble protein and enzymes and, and the color potential for it. And we've also been taught that six row has more soluble protein and an enzyme, and it's really good for adjunct brewing. In fact, in some cases, it's just mandatory for adjunct brewing. And these six row elements simply derive from there's just more crowded, smaller kernels on the barley head. So the premise of this podcast is that that 
the classic definition no longer is completely valid in North America. And, and why? It's because we started breeding a new version of Turo in North America, and it's fairly recent. It's only since the 70s. And we've moved away from the classic definition of, uh, of Turo barley. It doesn't really apply in North America. So I thought it, w- it would have some value to, um, to go through this. Uh, I've I've been in brewing since 1965, so I watched this transition from historic varieties in the United States through the new um, bread in North America varieties. And also, um, I was fortunate enough to be a member of AMBA for three different companies uh, since its founding. So I was I was present and, and uh, looked at the approval processes of how we got here. And I will be the first to admit my, my view back of the approval processes now is, is with perfect 2020 hindsight. But I, think, I thought it would be valuable to document this as an exercise if no other goal than to let's make sure we teach new brewers these differences in barley varieties. Very good. Now you mentioned that uh, North breeding Turo uh, didn't really start at all in North America until the seventies. Why? Why right. is that? I think it's because of low interest in Turo. You know, we were a, a six-row country from adaptation um, for 300, 350 years. As recently as the the fifties and sixties, probably only 10% of the malt in the United States was two-row. So there wasn't that much interest. This is long before craft brewing. This is long before all malt brewing. Um, and in fact, I think I'll, what I'll do is I'll touch on some history of, of how we got to that start in 1972. Sounds good. Uh, first of all, the um, let's, let's hit some ancient barley um, uh, history. You know, um, barley is ancient long, long standing of uh, tens of thousands of years. If it's not the first cereal cultivated, it's one of the first cereal cultivated. And its origins appear to be in um, what we now think of modern Syria, Israel, and Jordan. Uh, And at that time, both two row and six row were present. And it's really not even clear how how which one preceded the other it's not really clear whether six row preceded two row or two row preceded six row back in this uh, ancient period and it's interesting because we we run into the same problem that we run into when we try to search for the origins of beer we have the same problem with barley because there were no written languages to about 3500 pre BC. And all this happening in barley, the cultivation of it at 8,000 BC, the the collection of wild barley in 19,000 BC, all this was going on well before there was any recorded history. And one point I'd make, it's a myth that Six row is a modern invention just for um, for adjunct brewing. It's very ancient, and out there in the world, um, the germplasm collection that exists for barley now has about forty three hundred varieties in it. About half of them are two row, and half of them are six row. So it's been around for a long, long time. Uh, it had to be adapted though, because it's native and origins in the Middle East. So with the knowledge of beer, when people moved. They took barley with them. They never left home without it. And and through the spread of civilization, uh, barley went everywhere and was adapted across the globe um, as, as they moved. And um, it's now actually considered the most widely adapted cereal in the world. Um, it's grown at elevation. It's grown up in the Arctic Circle. It's very drought tolerant. Every location that has a cultivated crop on the whole globe has barley. Um, it's a cool season crop, and it's adapted uh, differently in different places. So we know that it's not native to North America. It had to be brought here by settlers uh, and explorers. And we know that it didn't really get brought here for food. It got brought here for animal feed and for brewing. The, um, the settlement of whether barley should be used for food or not was made in medieval times, long before the, anybody came to the United States or North America, uh, because the gluten, the, the elastic properties of wheat gluten were understood, and uh, people started baking, and that became food. And uh, barley was set aside and not really considered a food after that. So the first barley that got here was 
brought by the Spanish explorers into Mexico, Central America and Mexico, and it migrated up to um, California. That was a six row. That was a six row that was sourced in Morocco. That was the, it was very drought tolerant. That's what was brought over by the Spanish. There was no mention of two row at all at that time. And that actually is the California heritage barley. For 300 years, this six row sourced in Morocco, brought by the Spanish, was the principal barley uh, in California. Now, a little bit later, when the English and Dutch settlers came to the Mid-Atlantic, anywhere from Jamestown to Plymouth Rock, they brought both two rows and six rows. English two rows and Scottish six rows, some Dutch barleys. Uh, if you recall, in that period, there weren't really many German settlers at that time. It was mostly Dutch and English and um, some French further to the north. But in this particular case, um, in the Mid-Atlantic, the two-row adaptation was much better in Canada, but the two-row did not adapt well in the Mid-Atlantic. So do, you, do you know if, yeah. those were, um, if those were a mixture of both winter and spring uh, barleys, or, or were they primarily spring, or what? It'd be hard to tell, John, because right now, if you look at craft brewers in the United States, in, in, in my area here in Pennsylvania and Delaware, they're growing winter barleys. And you can grow... Um, you can grow spring barleys with a winter habit by planting them by, by variety. So it's hard to tell um, whether they were. All I could tell you is they were not named. It was, it was not common to name varieties. It was, they were just unnamed land races that came from different regions. And I, couldn't, I, I wouldn't know. I do know now that's, that this climate does support winter barley now. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what happened at that period. Okay. Um, I talked to a, a Penn State agronomist recently about this climate and the fact that barley didn't adapt that well here, and it was interesting. She described what our climate is around here as persistent humidity. So <laughs> that doesn't sound very comfortable. But it, tell, it tells you about barley. Barley's a cool season crop. It can tolerate humidity but not humidity plus heat. And it can tolerate heat, but not heat plus humidity. So it didn't do well. And, uh, you know, so we, we uh, uh, went through a long period um, of, of uh, starting out with six rows only. I think probably one of the other thing we always should think about is there were less German settlers then, and there were not lager beers yet either. So, um, but, you know, it, it, we have always had some two-row around, um, but as barley started to expand with the people going west, uh, Buffalo was a malting and milling center, um, and it was based on the completion of the Erie Canal. Prior to that time, you could just all you could do is get barley close by to your areas of uh, of civilization. But now with the Erie Canal, you could take barley from the west, and some and and some two-row used to come from Canada to uh, to the west. So there's always some two-row around. There's also um, evidence. There's a good account in the history of the Pabst Brewing Company where they were tested, German brewers there, by the end of the 1800s. They were still trying to find two rows that would grow in Wisconsin. And, and now you could see uh, varieties were being named. And this account says they're looking for a Chevalier type. They were looking and they tested. They gave, they, they funded all the seed and all the farmer's production of it, of things like Chevalier and Primus and Princess and Spanels. Um, and only Spanels did, did well, but this all went on between 1905 and 1912. Also, in 1908, the first widespread introduction of a two-row to the United States happened, and it happened in California, and it was the introduction of the two-row variety Hanschen, which was a selection. There was no breeding then. It was a selection from Moravian Hana, uh, and uh, it was made, and it became very successful, and then that became the, the standard uh, uh, barley in California from then. It's the first successful expansion of two-row, but you know, you always wonder if things would have been different because remember these dates all the initiatives were shut down by prohibition so uh, there's no mention at Pabst that they tried to restart looking for two row after prohibition um, and everything had a big setback there um, now prior to that uh, there were there was more there was more uh, 
the lager production started at 1840. Adjunct production started about 1870. And I'd point out here that this is another myth about Six Row, that it was in the U.S. and became popular only because of adjunct brewing. That's not true. We brewed for 250 years ale tradition before lager and before adjuncts with only Six Row. So, you know, we came back from Prohibition. Um, I always looked at there was still virtually no two rows in the United States, John. And I, I looked to I looked to the practical brewer. Uh, a lot of people are, are familiar with the current practical brewer, but I have here on my desk I have the 1946 first edition practical brewer. Nice. And it and it has and it describes more. I always I always like to look in these books because they describe exactly what went on by the knowledge and voice of the time. It's not somebody's modern um, research and interpretation of what went on. So in this 1946 version, uh, they, they they asked the question: What types of malt are used for brewing in the United States? And they describe. The most commonly used malt is made from six-row Manchuria-type barley grown in the north-central states. Lesser-used types are made from six-row Mediterranean barley, that's still that barley from Morocco, and two-row types grown in the western states, and they describe it as lesser-used. And then in another page, they describe the... um, the two-row varieties, and they describe them as Hanshin and Hana, grown in Oregon, California, Washington, and Montana. And they're grown on limited acreage in the Western states for special markets. So we really were still a six-row country up until the, this was written in 46, up through after Prohibition and into the 50s before brewing really started to expand in the U.S. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to take up all your time with some brewing history, but it's very interesting. I always associated the expansion of Turo that started into the 50s and 60s associated with the creation of brewing networks. Up until 1950 or so, all the large brewers operated from a central location and shipped their beer. And the largest breweries in that time, uh, this is from this is from the documents of 1949. The largest brewery in the United States was Schlitz, followed by Anheuser Busch, followed by Ballantyne, Pabst, Falstaff, and Schaefer. And just as relative size, the largest brewery in the United States, Schlitz, wasn't making 5 million barrels. And that's number six brewery, Schaefer, was making about 2 million barrels. But all of them were working in a central location. Now, things changed in 1950. The big Midwestern breweries, Schlitz, Pabst, um, Anheuser-Busch, all did the same thing. They established a brewery in Los Angeles, and they established a brewery in New York and, and, um, and Newark. And I think that's where they got more of their interest. The, the population was expanding in the West. They wanted to make their their beers with a common malt blend. And they were introduced to a lot more two-row in the West. And they didn't want the difference in their beer made with two-row in the West and six-row in the Midwest. And they started to, um, they started to uh, incorporate a common blend across the country. And two-row started to expand then. Uh, some two-row usage. I know this is supported by, I worked for Anheuser-Busch, and in the Anheuser-Busch archives, the first two-row that was in an Anheuser-Busch malt blend was 1950. So that's why I'm thinking this this was going. So, you know, then we have to go into this this really uh, important step of what this podcast is about, and that's the start of of brewing um, the um, uh, brewing breeding new two row varieties. The prior to this, uh, during the fifties, more two rows were brought from Europe. Um, brewery uh, malts like uh, Ferlbecks and Betzes and um, Purilin became common, and in 1972, just prior to the breeding introduction, and it would have been Clogus was the first one, I think we were at about 15% two-row usage in the United States, and Hanschen and Purilin and Betzes were dominant. They were all originally sourced in Europe and were in U.S. agriculture. Now, 
crossing of barley started a little sooner than this. We just didn't have a need for it in, in the United States. Uh, the actual technology of crossing for crop improvement started in the UK in about 1880 or 1890. And then in the US, in North America, uh, six-row breeding started about the 20s. But the very first two-row introduction in the United States that was expanded and uh, doing well was Clogus and was introduced in 1972 uh, from the USDA in Aberdeen. And that was rapidly followed by Harrington in 1981 and then a gap till Metcalf introduced uh, uh, and Cope in 1997 and Copeland in 1999. And now, Clog and after Clogus was introduced out of Idaho, those next introductions were all from Canada, and then uh, Hockett, which came from uh, Montana State in two thousand and eight. Um, and this uh, this is um, the sequence of the ones that have become dominant now. Now, I have to I have to mention that these are the dominant. Uh, easily obtainable commercial varieties. Uh, there's a lot of other varieties. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors run very um, robust breeding programs, and they breed um, barleys for their own interest. And you'll see plenty on the crop reports of, of varieties like uh, Voyager and Conrad and Merritt and um, Moravian. And the uh, and BC100, which is a Coors variety that is a Moravian type, but it was named for Bill Coors's centennial birthday. Um, they breed these varieties for their interest. So there's a lot of two-row that's used there that comes out of their breeding program. And I would say if you look at the parentage of Clogus and Harrington, the way breeding works, there was lots of Betzes in the parentage of those two. Um, but that seemed to be those traits were lost after Harrington. We seem to have left the European traits uh, behind. And this is important because while we were doing this, the uh, European um, concepts of barley did not change at all. So today, outside of the AB and Molson, Copeland and Metcalf and Hockett uh, dominate today uh, in this and we, we need to we need to talk about exactly how did the breeding um, of these uh, change. I want to mention one other thing though, and this is not talked about very much. Beyond the agronomic improvement of these, these new introductions in the malting industry ended three-day steeping and ended five-day germination. Uh, the European varieties were not easy to malt, and malt plants had to be built with enough equipment to steep for three days and germinate for five days. This isn't talked about much, but this really changed the malting industry uh, to their benefit to have uh, less equipment and um, uh, easier construction for a more streamlined process because malt plants built after the middle 80s into the 90s, they're not built they're built just for two-day steeping and four-day germination. So was the was the primary driver for breeding those varieties, like you said, the, the, the changes to the malting process, or was it primarily for agronomics? It was always agronomics. This That was a benefit that was gained and known after the fact. So more of a side effect, okay. Yes, it is. Although I would tell you, when we talk about uh, breeding guidelines and approval processes. The AMBA, because it's a combination of monsters and brewers, the AMBA approval or the AMBA guidelines always say that the new variety must malt uh, must malt in four days, must malt in four days germination. Hmm. So that's actually a standard for acceptance, and that was probably uh, that's the monsters input into it. You know, don't get me a variety that the brewers like that malts in six days. Right. Uh, so so. But but primarily, and I, and I have a, I have a few notes on um, uh, on um, who gained and who lost in this process. Um, but it's always the farmer. I mean, most of this funding is done in. Uh, although AMBA supports it, most of it's done at the fundamental level in the state um, land grant universities, and their whole purpose is to support agriculture. And the first priority is always agricultural improvement, crop improvement, and then we as monsters and brewers get to look at this, um, get to look at this change as we screen the varieties later. We shouldn't have any misconception that we participate in the breeding 
process. We participate only in, we get to screen the results of uh, the agronomic improvement to see its suitability for malting and brewing later. Yeah, we had, we just had Pat Hayes on the show a few weeks back, and uh, um, that's that's a great episode for anybody who wants to really learn more about that breeding process. Coming up, how North American Turo changed, why it happened, and who benefited from that evolution. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode brought to you by BSG, exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers from the 19th century through today's craft beer pioneers. Whether you're creating classic lagers, resin-clouded hazies, or barrel-aged behemoths, RAR North Star Pills, malted oats, and more are here to make your brewing dreams a reality. Get in touch at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects. Designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar, June 8th. District Southern California meets June 10th and 11th in Anaheim. District Northern Cal meets June 15th at Drake's Brewing in San Leandro. District Carolinas meets June 18th at Brewery 85 in Greenville, South Carolina. District Philly's golf outing is June 24th. District Rocky Mountain meets June 28th at Sweetwater in Fort Collins. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins July 22nd. District Mid-Atlantic meets in Richmond, Virginia, July 23rd. District Midwest meets in Columbus, Ohio, July 30th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. So I've, I've made the point that we're going to head for a third barley type. So I should talk about what are the measurable changes that occurred during this breeding. And I, I want to be clear on something because one, a lot of brewers and sometimes maltsters, they call these varieties hot. And, and what they mean is they take this malt or barley and when they malt it, it gives them a high output of soluble protein and enzymes and fan, and they consider this, it's just hot to handle, and it's a hot variety. It's going to make a lot of these artifacts. But 
These are artifacts of two more significant changes that took place, and I want to focus on the primary drivers, and that was expanding S over T ratios because Betz's could make very good malt at 38 S over T, and Metcalf pretty much typically is 47% S over T, and then also an expanding total protein coming in from agriculture. Because typical Betzes, we still grew those European varieties as European varieties, and the typical Betzes was uh, 10.5 protein, where a typical Metcalf now is in the, is in the middle 12s, 12.5% or so. So it's more important to understand those mechanics because the things that fall out of having higher total pro and higher, higher S over T ratios are the drivers of this. So, I need to take a step into malting mechanics a minute to explain this. Uh, Maltsters have to make functional malt, and and functional malt is easily defined as trouble-free loudering and runoff, and high, easy easy to recover, high extract recovery, high yields in the rate of extract recovery. And to do this, there's two aspects of it. One is protein simplification. The, the total insoluble protein in barley has to be reduced to produce enzymes and the free amino nitrogen. Um, and then a, a, a range of soluble proteins that, inter, that interact for body flavor and foam. So that's the protein side. On the carbohydrate simplification, to get free-flowing and functional extract, you've got to reduce the structural cell walls that encapsulate the starch granules and create free-flowing and recoverable starch at the brewery. And this is breaking down the beta-glucan and the pentazans, uh, such as arabinoxylan, to break those down to free the starch. Now, these two functions overlap, and and um, the place that they overlap is in the cell wall simplification to free the uh, extract because that cell wall is also built with protein as well as the structural carbohydrates. So you can't say, well, here's the protein over here independently and here's the, the carbohydrate simplification independently because they touch because the, the cell wall surrounding the starch is structurally com- a combination of structural carbohydrates and proteins. So, maltsters have to find a balance. They have to figure out just how much protein simplification is needed to get to the cell wall. Uh, and I'll introduce the concept of what they have to do is they have to reach the point in S over T ratio that they've created the beta-glucan reduction enabler because they just can't be satisfied to say, I created enzymes and I've got good fan and I've got foaming proteins. If they stop short of getting to the amount of protein simplification that's needed to digest the protein part of the cell wall where the beta-glucan is. So, this balance is is a genetic trait. This is I want to make a point that this is a genetic trait, and every barley variety is different. Every variety has a sweet spot. Uh, let me just give you some examples of uh, barley varieties that I've been involved with. The, the lowest one that I know of right now, there's a Czech, there's a Czech variety called uh, Bojo's. That makes a very low beta-glucan if you modify it at 37 to 39%. S over T. As I mentioned, the, the, the Europeans haven't changed their thoughts too much. The most common, um, the most common two rows in Germany now would be Propino, uh, Avalon, and Soloist. They will make very good malt at 40 to 42 S over T. Now, when we started this revolution in the United States and we moved away from that profile that Petsis had, uh, Harrington needed a 42 to 44, Harrington uh, uh, in terms of increased S over T. Metcalf needs 46 to 48. And we'll talk about Copeland a little more. That's a step back from um, Metcalf, but not as low as Harrington. It requires, uh, well, similar to Harrington, it requires a 42 to 44. Um, the Hockett that's common in the United States is 45 to 47. The important concept here is that it's a, it's a genetic apparently a genetic balance between uh, simplifying the protein and the carbohydrate. And 
it's important to understand that a maltster can't create one variety from another. Because I've heard many brewers, traditional brewers, say, well, the maltster should just control modification um, so we don't get so much uh, fan and we don't get much eminent. But that's a flawed concept because with some varieties, the maltster can't reach functional malt without uh, raising the S over T. It's a genetic profile issue, and that's the key thing that we've changed in the breeding of two rows. Um, and I also would say that um, the I did not say here that the S over T increase is to achieve a low beta-glucan. I said it's to enable a low beta-glucan. The, the protein solubilization that penetrates the protein part of the cell, cell wall is the enabler so that if the rest of the process is handled correctly to create the beta-glucanase and give it a chance to work uh, in the end of the process, in the fourth day of germination, you'll get a drop in beta-glucan. You have to create the enabler to reduce the beta-glucan. So if you don't create the enabler, the beta-glucan will never come down. But there's also cases where you can create the enabler and then mismanage the rest of the, the malting process and the beta-glucan doesn't come down either. So this is the fundamental change. This expanding S over T requirement to get functional malt out of the new, um, out of the new varieties. So if that, you know, if S over T was expanded like that over, you know, many uh, decades, you know, how did that actually, why did that actually happen? Was that a conscious decision? Well, it, you're correct that it had to go through some appro- approval processes. Uh, let me get to that in just a minute because I wanted to mention that it's important to, con- to also know that we've allowed the total protein in from production agriculture to expand to change a lot over time. Right. So, you know, and that has changed a lot from 10.5 up to 12.5. And you have to consider that total protein, the storehouse of all the complex protein that's going to be converted by the higher S over T. So you have a high creation of artifacts in the S over T, and you're providing it more raw material, so to speak, in terms of total uh, protein coming from agriculture. There's one other factor that's really likely here, and this is a, I can't, this is a coincidence of when this was going on, we were just developing the beginnings of beta-glucan measurements. And we were just under, this is in the 80s, we were just understanding the beta-glucan role in brewing and how to manage it in the malt plant. And this coincides with this breeding of new varieties. And you have to look at beta-glucan as the glue that holds the extract together. We've gone through two iterations of beta-glucan. When it first came out, it was well understood, the interference of high beta-glucan with smooth loudering. And it's pretty much agreed on that in most loudering systems, if you go above 180, 200 beta-glucan, you're going to have some some loudering problems. But it also became understood at a second level that even if you didn't, if you came down through the 160s, 150s, 140s, even if you didn't have loudering problems, you were not getting the maximum extract out of the out of the malt. And what was determined then, if you really want free-flowing extract, you need to get below 100. And we could see steadily the extract going up and recovery rates in the brew house uh, going up. So it's possible that this S over T could have been pushed further because of a, of a developing understanding of beta-glucan at the same time. Hmm. And, and, and it's kind of an open question. If, if, if we had known about this in 1960, when we had Betz's as our primary variety, would we have been pushing the S over T on Betz's? if the understanding existed back then. So that's a, that's kind of sort of in the middle of this. Um, now, let me get to the question where you, that you asked as far as uh, how did this happen? How did it occur? Because we do have new variety approval processes um, that, that, that these had to go through. And um, uh, I, I would be the first to admit at the beginning of these comments, this is with perfect 2020 hindsight, because I'm looking back at it now as fortunate to represent three different companies at AMBA over 30 years, including I represented Pabst at its founding in 1982. Now, as we went through these changes, 
there was no there was no participation in AMBA by all malt brewers at the beginning at all. And there was some interest in two-row, but it all came from the West because that's where the two-row was coming and the Western malting companies, both in Canada and the United States, had export businesses. Um, and uh, they had export off to the Pacific Rim where people were looking for the traditional two-row that would come out of uh, that would come out of Europe or Australia. Um, and there doesn't seem to be, the interest that was in two-row was being dealt with within the Coors and AB breeding programs because they were brewing two-rows for their own interests. Um, another, another observation of why things expanded, back then, the breeding guidelines at that time had many equal or better than the Czech variety statements in it. In other words, a breeder got a message that I want a new variety that has equal or more enzyme than the last variety or than the Czech variety. And they didn't really have at that time, we didn't, we weren't smart enough net yet. Uh, we didn't have a cap on numbers. We never said anything about how much enzyme is too much enzyme, uh, how much fan is too much fan. So, but for a couple of years in there and the, through the 80s, all the guidelines really focused on was make it equal or better. In other words, keep pushing it upward, keep pushing it upward. So there was no, you know, but there was no two-row voice, and there was certainly no almost two-row voice. Also, this guideline of, there was always an AMBA guideline that you have to have balanced modification in four-day germ. And all those older two-rows were five-day germination. Um, and I can tell you from my own personal experience, no one put their hand up and said, hey, guys, you know, this isn't really two-row. There was that voice wasn't there. That voice or that connection to the classic definition or European two row just wasn't there. And were the germination uh, times in Europe uh, still st- longer? Still, they are. They still are. They are today. Yeah, they are today. They're five day. They're five day. And uh, the Czechs have even a more traditional process. They have a six-day germination. Uh, they tend to think of a really cool, slow, patient process. They grow their six-day germination with some cooler temperatures and less green malt moisture. They're just, they're, just, they're just historically running a nice, patient, slow process. But you won't find, or you really won't find four-day malting in uh, most of Europe. Uh, it's still all five-day on the varieties they have. And I think probably, if I look at it, John, if I look at what's the real factor here, the the real factor is we were increasing the S over T, the soluble protein, the enzymes. Um, We didn't have a wide use of fan back then. That wasn't in play. These numbers just were not foreign to maltsters or brewers. They looked like six-row. Six-row breeding was advancing at the same time, and I would look back on it now, again, with perfect hindsight and say, well, look, the numbers weren't any different than the malt that we've been using for 300 years. So what could be wrong with those numbers? What could be wrong with two-row looking like six-row? It'd be more functional. It'd be more useful to, again, an association that was made up entirely at that time of adjunct brewers. So they got approved. Now, that's changed a little bit. Um, because in 2014, AMBA now has separate guidelines for all malt two row. Because now there is an all malt voice in AMBA. There's there's a significant number of craft maltsters and craft brewers in AMBA, and uh, they have um, uh, not tried to change the overall breeding guidelines, but said, "Now wait a minute. There's a different malt that's needed in all malt brewing." But that's only been in play since 2014. And is that voice loud enough, and does it know what to ask for? Well, that's a that's an interesting question because you have a because you have two brewers, two large brewers in the United States, making eighty five percent of the beer and consuming sixty five percent of the malt. Now, it's true that the craft brewing industry, for the amount of beer they make, consumes a disproportionate amount of the malt. They're somewhere at thirty six, thirty seven percent of all the malt, but there's six thousand voices there. Um, and unless they're pulled together through the Brewers Association or through AMBA membership, um, because I would imagine within craft brewing, there's a number of people that say, look, I built a really successful product on the malt that I have, and I don't have any need to do anything different. Uh, and there's people that have adapted their processes to it. So I'm not sure how big 
or how fast uh, this is going to go. I do know it won't reverse breeding in the United States because the adjunct brewers have the malt they want. So what it would be, it would be a second uh, group of malts that would be developed and they would be aimed back toward the traditional um, European guidelines. Joe, you, you already mentioned the massive benefits that maltsters received uh, throughout this evolution of North American two-row, but in the supply chain, who benefited the most? Barley producers by far gained the most. Um, between Betsis, and if I went a step further than um, Metcalf to Meredith, that resulted in a 36% yield increase across the barley industry but for barley farmers. They got increased head counts with plumper kernels, higher test weights, better shatter resistance, so it didn't lo- uh, improved um, stiffer straw, improved against lodging, more disease resistant. Clearly, barley producers benefited the most, but that's what breeding is directed at, crop improvement. Molsters gained also, but they picked up a couple of disadvantages. First of all, their, their uniform kernels, the better the better kernels and um, uniformity, that reduced barley cleaning losses. One of the things that brewers or that maltsters are faced is as soon as they get raw barley in, they have to clean it. So that's a direct economic loss, whether that's three, you paid for something and you're going to throw away some percentage of it. And, um, you know, sometimes on six rows, that's as much as 10% or on thinner two rows, 10%. But, but with good uniform um the new varieties, cleaning losses are at three percent or so. So they so they gain from economically from a more uniform kernels. Also, the more uniform kernels, they have more consistent and spontaneous water uptake. It it eliminated the need to malt by different size grades. Years ago, when varieties had more. Uh, Different diversity of kernel sizes. You had to separate the kernel sizes and malt them separately. But now that's not true anymore. You can t- you can take the whole run of malt above the screen that you want to grade at and malt it together. They have just very spontaneous water uptake and, and uniform malting. And again, it eliminated 72-hour steeping. Every steeping system now is 48 hours or less. It ended five-day malting. All germination is four days less. But you said that maltsters also kind of took a hit too, though, right? Yes. And here's where they took a hit. This spontaneous malting, the reverse side of that is reduced seed dormancy and the risk of pre-harvest sprout. Um, Because... One person's spontaneous and fast malting is another person's lack of stability for long-term storage. These varieties brought what you hear now about in the American malting industry about this problem with pre-harvest sprout and lack of stability in storage. That was brought by this breeding evolution accidentally. And again, it's one of those things where we look at it, boy, this is a good variety. It just takes off in the malt house really fast. But in some seasons, not every season, if we have poor harvest conditions, we have pre-harvest sprout and we lose barley. And for sure, these barleys are less stable in long-term storage. So that's a, uh, that's a, that's a problem. Also, these higher modification profiles that give brewers more extract at the margin, give maltsters more malting loss. Because pushing through to that more of a degree of modification to break open the cell walls and free the extract, that's, that's pushing the germination uh, a little bit further. And, it's, and, it, and it represents a malting loss. So they've lost a little bit there. But they really gained on the malt plant construction because now they, can, they have less equipment and simpler construction. Okay, so how about the brewers then? It sounds like maybe well, it depends on what kind of brewer you are. Exactly. You, the brewers gained or lost depending on their brewing approach and their brewing system. Everybody gained from steadily increasing extract. These varieties all had another step up in extract. Um, and it, and this, it, this kept increasing with the knowledge that lower beta-glucan released extract. If you get under 200 beta-glucan, you clear the loudering issues. You get under 100 beta-glucan, you really have a lot of extract release. So the increased enzymes in this made um, adjunct brewing more efficient. It actually has allowed the elimination of six-row from adjunct brewing, um, and that's in progress. Um, but the also increased uh, enzymes enabled standard loggers to have, uh, 
uh, to evolve to a higher RDF. Uh, you know, when I started in brewing, standard lagers were about 62% degree of attenuation to reach uh, 5% uh, ABV, and they were at about 12 gravity. They've slowly evolved over a long period of time to 69, 68, 69% degree of attenuation uh, and dropped now. Uh, still have the 5% ABV, but they've dropped it like 10.8. And that's pretty much standard across international lagers also. So we, there was gains, but brewers have lost a little bit too. Now, this depends again on the brewer or the product, but the increased protein modification, there's more soluble protein, but there's also a higher percentage of enzyme degradation products within the soluble protein. And this directionally goes toward thinner beers with lower foam quality because, you know, you can't, you can't stop enzyme um, functions. You, if you let them go, they're indiscriminate. So, yeah, we're making more of the insoluble soluble, but at the same time, the enzymes in the malting plant are racing toward the lowest common denominator, toward all amino acids, um, and they're 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 breaking up some of the protein levels that we think are really important to foam and flavor. And so, I think directionally, and every brewer makes this decision for himself. Um, the uh, uh, it's directionally towards some thinner beers, and then also the, the there's I believe there's a flavor loss uh, in malt associated with this because the higher attenuation or the higher modification raises the color potential, and if you put a on a lower modified malt on the kiln with a single kiln cycle, you'll get a lower con you'll get a lower color than if you put a higher modified malt on the kiln with the same cycle. So Brewers tended to insist on they wanted their pale malt to still be 1.6 to 1.8. So what the reaction of maltsters has been is to um, alter kiln cycles where they have to to um, get that color that's insisted on in brewer spec. And um, it's resulted in a malt flavor loss, in, in my opinion. But it sounds like the, the pros kind of outweigh the cons if you're an adjunct brewer, though. It depends. Yeah, it really depends on your brewing system uh, because, um, you know, the basis of adjunct brewing is you have to have a high expression of malt attributes because you're going to survive dilution with adjuncts. And you have to higher enzymes, particularly um, uh, you need higher alpha amylase for adjunct grain mashing. So, yeah, adjunct brewing needs all that high expression of attributes. But the, but the problem with comes to all malt brewing because without adjunct dilution, it's really an overexpression of malt attributes, uh, and it's a problem for all malt brewers because the higher enzymes are an attenuation control issue, uh, which I'd like to talk again in a little more detail in another podcast. And the higher fan residual is really a fermentation and flavor stability issue. And, you know, every brewer determines foam quality and mouthfeel, whether they're an issue or not. And generally, in all malt brewing, it's less of an issue because you have the the, the body of an all malt recipe plus a lot of uh, specialty malt inclusions. So, yeah, there's winners and losers depending on your perspective on it. But I would tell you, in general, the the adjunct brewers have the malt that they want, and they've gained they've gained uh, from this. And you know the. Um, in the timing, you have to, again, remember the timing. The, the, we didn't really have an all-malt voice at the start of this change. Because remember, and I'm sure Pat Hayes pointed this out and talked about breeding, uh, the breeding cycle takes close to 15 years, 12 to 15 years. So when we introduced Clogus in, uh, well, let's let's use the example of the most common one now, Metcalf. When we used when we introduced Clog uh, Metcalf in 1997, that cross for that might have been made early in the 80s, and for sure, you know that cross that resulted that eventually went through validation that became Clogus in 1972, that might have been made in the early 60s or late 50s yeah. because of the way the breeding cycle works. So. You know what that gives us now. We're we're at kind of a if we sort of summarize here, uh, where we at. We're 
we have a unique two-row in North America, and it's unique compared to the rest of the world because the rest of the world did not change their expectation of two-row at all. And my primary goal with trying to summarize it in, in this podcast is I want to document the creation of this third barley type. And I just want to encourage barley and malt literature and teaching to reflect this. I've, I've included in any of the presentations or any of the course material that I use that it's just important that brewers understand these differences. And, and my three barley premise is based on we changed here, but the rest of the world did not. So, so now we brew with a two-row in this country that's a mixture of traits. You know, we have the benefit of its plump with uniform kernels like all two-row is. But in North America, it's grown at higher protein, and its genetic-based S over T requirements result in a malt that has really high soluble protein, high enzymes, high fan, higher color potential, and these are all six-row traits. So uh, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, for for uh, for an all-malt brewer that insists on two-row, um, he's really brewing with a with six-row traits. <laughs> You've talked about how six row is on the decline, um, and, and and that it may even eventually disappear in the U.S. Um, but at one point, I've heard you say that six row will continue to exist as long as there are malt houses east of that six row growing region. Why don't you explain that? Well, yes, and uh, boy, you remember things you've heard from me, John. <laughs> <laughs> but I can t- let me give you some facts. First of all, we were a six row country for 350 years of using between, at the most, we, we, we barely moved out of 90%. I think in 2018, we're going to be 90% two-row, okay? And it's because of the, the, first of all, the large adjunct brewers have the ability to, have the ability to replace the six-row. They don't need six-row traits because they have them in the two-row traits now. But in terms of the six row will always exist as long as there are um, malt plants east of the six row area. Um, but the uh, because of the main driver of malt plant economics, and that is when you malt, you grow, you 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 lose twenty to twenty two percent mass of the barley you start with. 100 tons of barley in gives you, after cleaning and malting, maybe 78 tons of malt out. So the economic model is based on you can't spend too much money on barley uh, infrastructure, barley-related costs on elevation and handling and shipping, because as soon as you reach the malt house, you're going to lose 22% of that value. So... The economic model that's understood in malting is you need to malt where the barley is. Yeah. And, um, and that's why it, it'd probably be surprising to, um, to most uh, brewers, but the two largest malting companies in the world are French. France is the largest uh, barley-producing country, one of the largest, bar- and it's the largest malt-producing and exporting countries. And the two, and, and the economics, are it's the, all the large grain-producing countries are the large malt-producing countries. Um, in some cases, they're just self-sufficient in it, like we are in North America. In some cases, like Australia and Canada and the European Union, they're big exporters, much more than they need locally, and they provide all the malt to the countries that are deficient in um, malt production for, for beer. So, um, yes, it's it's. Uh, but I would have to tell you, over time, uh, if I if I ticked off the malt plants that have closed as barley production has moved west, it'd be a startling amount, startling amount of production that has moved uh, as assets are retired and reorganized to the west. And I think it's probably common knowledge that uh, in the last two weeks or so, Cargill yeah. uh, announced the uh, closing of their uh, Spiritwood plant right in the middle of the six row area. And, so there are that, still mul- that was one of the largest plants in the world, wasn't it? It w- probably it probably was the largest plant in the world until uh, RAR's expansion in Shakopee, and I think that was neck and neck. But but the reason it's closed is there was uh, it wasn't fully utilized. It was it hadn't been fully utilized for years. So, but physically, capacity-wise, yes, it was uh, 
one of the largest malt plants in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and the reason I say that there's going to be 90% of the malt in the United States is going to be two-row, the crop reports, if you look at the crop summaries of uh, everything that's grown in the United States, right now, it's between, after you factor in feed barleys and things like that, it's roughly 75 to 80% of the barley grown in the United States is two-row. However, the, the U.S. is deficient in barley, and it brings barley from Canada to malt in the U.S., and the malting industry doesn't make enough barley or doesn't make enough malt for the U.S., so malt is also brought to the U.S., and all that malt, all that barley from Canada is two-row. So I think that pushes the production figures in the United States um, when it transfers through to the malt that's used in the United States, over 90%. That was Joe Hertrick here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Join us next week for part three. If you really study the... The, the profile of the most classic lagers, Bavarian Hellas and Czech Pils, they are not uh, above 62% degree of attenuation. They are very low. They they build the body behind the, um, behind the hops with a very nice uh, extract profile that comes out of a low attenuation. All malt mash with American malt should be hot and short. This North American two-row is not consistent with all malt brewing, and it can be problematic for all malt brewers. And I'd like to cover those all malt brewing impacts and some some um, some pathways to try to mediate that. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.